All right, here we go. John 7, 25. So some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this man the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him, and they said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? I read a story several months ago about two ladies. They were roommates with one another, and they lived in an urban setting, and they were sitting on the front porch just listening to the sounds of the night in the neighborhood. And just a few, door, few doors down from their home, um, you could hear a church choir singing, and it was just beautiful. And so one of them was just really taking in the message that was there. The other lady was listening to the night sounds of the crickets uh, and just enjoying nature. And, and so the one that was listening to the choir said to her friend, isn't that a lovely sound? And her friend listening to the crickets said, yes. And I understand that they do that by rubbing their legs together. And so they had kind of crossed ways and, and misunderstood one another. And, and uh, what we see in John chapter 7 is that reality. Is there is a common message and the people are not connecting with what's actually uh, fully being heard. So the confusion comes from Jesus' brothers beginning with them. Uh, the Jews just at large who will be at the Feast of the Tabernacles. The crowd that gathered around Jesus, they will be confused and they will also reject Christ. The Pharisees are confused about things that he's saying. We just read there, he's like, I'm going to go away. And they're like, what in the world is this guy talking about? Later, next week, the officers of the temple, they will be confused about Christ and reject him. Nicodemus will encounter him again in verse 50. And he's got some confusion as well. And the disciples are there taking all of this in. And so so there's lots in John chapter 7 of confusion about Christ. And so what Christ is going to want to do is what he's consistently been doing really ever since John chapter 5 when he has shown up in the temple is to make it clear as to who he is. God is not about keeping the clarity hidden. He wants us to know who he is. Now we know Jesus taught parables in one sense to hide from the the wise and the learned, but there is an aspect of God's nature that He wants us to know the truth. He wants us to come to know Christ. And, and so we will see today Christ once again telling them who He is, even though all the way back in John chapter 5, He had really made that clear. And so we've got all of those boxes are still out in the foyer of all those things Jesus was saying. This is who I am. Now one of the unique things as we begin to get into to the text today about John the Apostle's writing is this. is We know at the very end of this gospel, John says, I suppose that if all the things were to be written down that Jesus said and did, there would not be enough libraries, not enough books to record all the things that Jesus did. And as a matter of fact, John just really gives us snippets of the life of Jesus. Much of what we read in John some of these chapters they just take place in a few hours and what we're reading in John chapter 7 is one of those instances we will see a little bit later uh, next week at the last and greatest days we'll kind of jump ahead four days but John is just giving us real specific insight to some brief moments of time and the significance of those and so that's where we are today we're on the same day 
as uh, what we were last week. So if you would look with me and let's read 25 through 27 again. And I want to talk about what was happening then and what happens today is just seeing Jesus grounded in man's assumptions and, and man's opinions and not ever arriving at the truth. So look with me in 25 through 27 again, please. So some of the people of Jerusalem, let me just stop there for a moment. So likely, because there's different groups in John chapter 7, these are probably people who lived in Jerusalem. Jesus had consistently come to the temple at various times. They were more familiar with him because of his coming and his teaching in the temple. And so John is, is giving us another aspect of the group that's there. So some of the people who are likely inhabitants and citizens of Jerusalem, they said to one another, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is. He's speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So let's talk about this for a moment. So they are citizens of Jerusalem. Word's gotten out. The religious leaders are tired of this Jesus guy. They're tired of when he does things, how he does things, what he says, And so they know, the word's gotten out, that they're done with him and they want to kill him. So they've resolved that the only way to stop this this guy is to kill him. And so now they're in the temple. There are literally, I mean, mean, you're talking at the Feast of the Tabernacles. You're talking shoulder to shoulder. I mean, just people from all over Israel have come. Not just from all over Israel, but from outside of Israel. Jews have come. And it's just packed. And so, so here they are. Jesus is sitting, he's come into Jerusalem in the middle of the temple, and he sits down in the temple and he begins to preach and he begins to share. And as he does it, the citizens are like, okay, wait, 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 this doesn't make sense to us. There are two things that were really clear to them. They know that, that Jesus was sought by the religious leaders to kill him, and yet here he is out in the open, so things, they deduce, must have changed in the eyes of the religious leaders. And here's the two things that they had come to the conclusion of. This guy is really, really brave. He knows that people are wanting to kill him, and he's come back into the temple, and he's sitting there, and he is proclaiming the truth of the kingdom. He is, he is, he is saying things that they don't want him to say. And so they say this, so they affirm this, is not the man that they kill, and here he is speaking openly. Can it be that the authorities really know that he is the Christ. And so they look at Jesus and think, okay, this guy's got great courage. Nobody defies the Pharisees, and this guy is. The second conclusion that they come to, um, briefly, I would note, is since they're not stopping him, have the Pharisees come to the conclusion that we actually have God in our midst? We actually have the Messiah who's actually come, and here he is. So there was some confusion going on, to say the least. So the citizens are confused, the religious leaders are confused, the people are looking and going, we, this doesn't make sense to us. Why, if they're wanting to kill him, are they allowing him to speak openly and to teach? And so, so they see and recognize, I guess this may be, maybe the Pharisees have changed their mind. Now I want to touch on this just for a moment. Just as there was great confusion 2,000 years ago in the temple on this day in the Feast of Tabernacles, as a matter of fact, in October of, of that year, Jesus is there on this day in the, in the context here, teaching. In our day and time, there's much confusion about Christ as well. And you hear this today put out there um, all around us today as you hear things like this. There's still much confusion about Christ. And here's what people say. God is all loving. He's incredibly loving. And yes, God is love. And God is incredibly loving. But, but it's, it's kind of connected now to this message of since God is loving, He is okay with certain things. And he kind of turns a blind eye to lying, stealing, issues of homosexuality, other things of that nature. He's not not really concerned about that. He just is loving, and so it's okay for you to be and do whatever you want to do. So so we hear that today. Another thing that we hear today is, is that Jesus is a way to the truth. He's not the truth. He is a way to God, and so you almost hear this. In Christian circles, not almost hear this, you do hear this at times in Christian circles, that, that even in, in the world in general, that, that through all religions, they're all a pathway to get to the one true God. And that's not true. Another thing that you hear 
as well. And for many, many decades now in our country, churches have been focused on pragmatism. And what pragmatism just means is this, is, is teaching in such a way that convinces people that, that it, this, this works, this thing is, is you know, making sure Christianity works and, and making sure it fits into a certain kind of system and, and things of this nature. And one of the things that's been, become the fruit of that is, is that God's most concerned about our happiness. And so everything is taught and preached and undergirded from that perspective of God's main concern about your life is that you will be happy and content in, in every aspect of your life. Now let me just deal with that just for a second. I believe God is concerned about our happiness. I think God, God, God wants us to be content and God wants us to have joy and God wants us to have happiness. But God is also deeply concerned about our godliness. So is He concerned about our happiness? Yeah, I believe He is. But I think he's also deeply concerned about our godliness as well. So what's the issue? What has become the issue? What was the issue 2,000 years ago? So here you have a group of people, covenant people. God's given them written word. He's given them laws. He's given them things to follow. So, And many of those things were pointing to the coming of the Messiah. So how in the world did the Messiah finally come and arrive on the scene that they could not recognize him, that they couldn't see who he is in their midst how do you and i with the rich heritage that we have in this nation that has come from the great theological discoveries and 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 big battles fought over the bible in europe that came here us, us understanding the depth and the in the significant things in regard to theology how have we ended up where we are in 2020 well here's where i think it is and it, we see it in the text here we have a knowledge of God that doesn't arrive at a place that's truth. So we know about, but we haven't arrived at a real truth place where we understand the biblical Jesus. Now what we see in the text in verse 27, look at 27 again with me. So here's where their confusion came from, and I'll share that confusion. So verse 27 says, But we know, we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears... No one will know where he comes from. Now, here's their misunderstanding. They have a knowledge of what it was going to be like when the Messiah came, but it, but it was a false understanding and false interpretation of the text. So Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 tells us this. It gives us a picture of the coming of John the Baptist who would prepare the way. And then the second part of Malachi 3, 1 says this, And then the Lord will suddenly appear in the temple. So the Jews had interpreted this verse that when the Messiah came, and again, watch, nothing is new today. 2,000 years ago, they wanted the wow factor. Then when Messiah came, it would be like lightning and, I don't know, light show, fog machine. I don't know what the case may be. He's just going to appear in the temple, and everybody's going to go, wow, Messiah's here and so so they're wanting this so they had, had interpreted this that the messiah was just going to out of the blue just one day boom he's just there in the temple he's appeared out of nowhere and it was going to be miraculous that's not what that meant another thing that they misinterpreted was isaiah chapter 53 there's a section in isaiah 53 that says and who will declare his generation they had interpreted that aspect of Isaiah 53 to say this, that no one will know where the Messiah comes from. That nobody will know that. He's just going to suddenly appear. And watch, because they had misinterpreted two really important texts, when Jesus showed up, they couldn't recognize him. So Sunday after Sunday, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't apologize that I'm a broken record. And I, I hope that you outside of here if you listen to other speakers writers whatever the case may be that they're they're not a broken record either they just consistently say the same thing it is absolutely critical for a church to interpret the scripture properly because if you do not you end up watch again look at the practical example here here's a group of people who for thousands of years have had god's word had had god's law had had god's word pointing them to the coming of the Messiah, and now he's in their midst, and they can't recognize him. They don't see that he is the fulfillment of Scripture. 
And so that's why we don't do Doak's interpretation of the Scripture. We don't do this interpretation. We don't do James's interpretation. We don't do Brian's. We do. We try to be as faithful as we can to the written text because if we don't, we begin to drift a little bit and we can end up to a place where we're confused about things. And I think that's where we are today in many ways that we have, we have missed, we have, we've wanted the word to be different, to fit our fleshly longings instead of being driven by our spirit that just says, let your truth fall on me because your truth is the only thing that can bring me freedom. That's it. And so, so here we have in the text, they had a knowledge of the coming of the Messiah, and, but because they had misinterpreted things, they missed Jesus that was there. Their fallback position always was about Jesus, even though he said, I'm the bread who's come down from heaven. Their fallback position was, well, we know that he's from Nazareth. We know his parents. We know his brothers and sisters. We know what his occupation was. We know this guy because when the Messiah comes, nobody's going to know where he comes from, and he's just going to suddenly appear, which, by the way, he did suddenly appear in the temple many times. Remember the time? Twice, front part of his ministry, the back part of his ministry, he went into the temple, and what did he do? He overturned the money changers. And so he did suddenly appear, and he would come, and he would teach, and he would pour out his heart, but they had misunderstood these things. And I believe that just as it was 2,000 years ago, there's a lot of assumptions today and opinions about Jesus, but not without a biblical understanding of who he is. And what comes of a culture, a church culture, that arrives at man's truth and neglects biblical truth is what you have even in the church at times is relativistic truth where um, you can have your truth and I can have my truth and they can have the truth and we all have our own truth. It's our own version of the truth and the hope comes in that we know that Jesus is the truth. And when you have this reality that we see here, this drifting, you end up with a culture just like Judah before the exile where Isaiah said to the nation these words, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. This is Isaiah 5.20. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd, in their own sight. And I believe in a land that has no wisdom is one that has abandoned the truth and lives with the assumptions of man, which becomes a very dangerous place. And a land full of the assumptions of man about Christ will only end up at a place of lies and confusions. And there's a lot of assumptions today as the hope for our land, a good economy, um, a good outcome on Tuesday night, um, if the lockdown would just end, then things would be better. And there's just no hope unless Jesus is involved. He's the hope. And so we want, we want godliness, we want righteousness, we want morality to dominate. But listen, only truth in Jesus can bring freedom. Only truth in Jesus can do that and so in our text we just have that reality and so Jesus does something once more then I want to do it one more today because let's join with what Jesus does here so in the midst of the confusion he tells them one more time let me remind you of who I am so let's look at who he is look at 28 so Jesus proclaimed in the midst of their confusion as he taught in the temple you know me and you know where I come from But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me, he's true. And him you do not know. So in the midst of their lostness, in the midst of their confusion and their opinions, Jesus addresses the people 
one more time. And again, I want to remind us what we see. They want to kill him. He steps into the temple. He proclaims the truth of God's word. He is undeterred and focused to walk in the truth and to proclaim the truth. And so, so here he is. He's been having this dialogue with them about who he is for, for many months now. And he remains undeterred and continues to teach. He does not change his methodology. He doesn't change his strategy, and neither should we. We proclaim the truth, and we stand on the truth. And so he doesn't make it more palpable to taste better. He just wants people to know, because there's not salvation if if you don't come to Jesus. There's no true salvation. There's no true freedom. And so in the midst of their confusion, he says to them five things. You know me. You know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. And so let me just remind us of these just real briefly. Five things he says to them. He tells them this. You actually do know me. You're saying, you think you know me, but you actually really know me. I have made it clear by everything that I've said, all that I've been doing all over Israel, you know who I am. I am the bread who has come down from heaven, so you do know me. And there are many who know and will just stay away, or they will reject, and they will willfully um, refuse to come to Christ. The second thing that he tells them there, not only do you know me, but I want to remind you, but you know where I come from. I've been telling you where I come from, that I come from my father, from my father's presence. And so you know where I come from. And again, their default position, the kind of fallback position was, well, we know where he's from. He's from Nazareth. Actually, this was a bit ludicrous. The Jews were sticklers for detail. They kept in the temple area, a record of all the genealogies and where people came from, they could have gone into the temple and looked up that this Joseph guy, this family, is actually from David's line. So Jesus is from David's line. They could have, they could have seen all of this, but they weren't interested in looking at that. They had just, again, made a bunch of assumptions because they didn't like the things that Jesus was doing. And so he tells them, listen, you think that I'm from Nazareth. I'm not. I'm not you actually really do know where I have come from. And I think this takes place all the time, is that, is that people do know, but they just aren't willing to yield their heart and to come to a place of following Christ. And so he tells them, you know me, you know where I come from. Here's the third thing of his clear revelation of his nature and his mission. He says, I have come in my Father's name to do my Father's will. And so he says, listen, I didn't come of my own accord. I'm not here because one day... I said to my father, hey, father, I'm going to go down to earth. It'll be about a few seconds in your time because the day is a thousand years to you and a thousand years as a day. And, but I'm going to go down there and spend about 33 years kind of hanging out with people down there. And I'm just going to kind of I'm going to kind of go do that. And then I'll and then I'll come back. That is not what happened here. Jesus says, listen, I came because my father sent me here. I didn't come of my own accord, but I came submitting to um, the father, my father. And so Jesus his point here, this was a big deal to him because he spoke of it so often that he came to fulfill his Father's will and his mission. And so again, Jesus once again tells them, I did not come to be about me. I came to honor my Father. And so he proclaims the Father again. And fourthly, he tells them in the next part of 28, he says, and he who sent me is true. And so in other words, Not only is the Father true, but guess who also is true? Jesus is true. He is true. So the Father is true, and He sent Jesus in the truth. In our day and time, we've talked about that in these weeks here on Sunday morning. We've posted it on the internal Facebook page. If you read that ever, um, we put articles up there. There are supposed leaders of the church today in what's called progressive Christianity who speak as if Jesus has changed his mind in regard to things that were written 2,000 years ago, that if Jesus were to be able to come back again today, he would want a do-over on certain sections of the Scripture. That's kind of how it is portrayed and kind of how it is spoken. And he would rewrite things to kind of tame them down so that everybody feels comfortable about what's actually in the text of Scripture. And they speak as if the Holy Spirit, who is all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-perfect, He is powerful God, could not have anticipated 2020 and the culture and what the culture wants to embrace. 
um, instead of. And so we reject this thinking here at this church that we trust that the scripture that has come to us is absolutely sufficient. It's totally true. And we can trust in it. And so Jesus says there, he who sent me, he's true. He's true. And I think regardless of whatever position anybody in the room may have in regard to Tuesday's outcome, which I don't think Wednesday we're going to know Tuesday's outcome, regardless of what it is, listen church, regardless of what it is, nothing changes about this. Nothing changes. This is what we follow. This is what we embrace. This is what we live. And this becomes the heart. Jesus is the truth. And the last thing he says to them here is that if you reject him, then you reject who? The Father. So, he's, so he tells them. And him you don't know. And so he's telling them, listen, if you're going to reject me, you're rejecting the Father because the Father has, he's the one who has sent me and you don't know him. This must have been shocking for them to hear this. Here's a covenant people who knew the word had been given and now Jesus is telling them, you actually don't know God because if you really knew him, you would see him in me because he and I are one and you would recognize this reality. And so here's Jesus telling the covenant people of God that they don't know God. It's not a great strategy to build a crowd, but it's a great way to win converts, biblical converts, that they would come to know who Jesus is and make disciples because there is no salvation unless you come to know Jesus. And so later in John chapter 8, verse 19, Jesus will say, he said, they said to him, where is your father? And Jesus said, you know neither me nor my father because if you knew me, you would know my father also. And as I said it, I think last week, um, they did not lack revelation of Jesus' nature. They had enough. And so here Jesus, once again, in the midst of the confusion, makes it clear about who he is. And now let's look at the next thing. Look at verse 29. Short verse, but it's packed with great, great truth. So Jesus says, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Look at these three things here and I want to talk just for a moment about the necessity of Jesus why Jesus must be at the center of our lives and three things Jesus says here I know him I know the father I know him for I have come from his presence and he sent me here to you this is critical church listen to this today We must know the one who knows the Father. We must know the one who knows the Father best. And so Jesus says, listen, you're confused. You've got assumptions about me. You've not arrived at truth because you've misunderstood Malachi 3. You've misunderstood Isaiah 53. And so you're missing it. I'm here in your midst and I'm telling you, I know the Father. We must know the one who knows the Father. Secondly, Jesus says, for I have come from him. I've come from his presence. I've come from being, I'm one with him and I, he has sent me here. And so he has told us, I am the bread who's come down from heaven. I, I and my Father are one. And so Jesus came from the presence of the Father. He assures them. And thirdly, he says, and this one who I know, who is the Father, and, and I, I have come from his presence, he has sent me to be among you so that you would know who he is. And here's the point of this verse. Listen, listen. Here's the point of the verse. He must be at the very center of our lives, of our church, of our families. And when that happens, the goodness of knowing God is incredibly, incredibly fulfilling. I've got something up here with me in case you've been wondering why I have some stuff here. So I've got some good stuff, and so I'm going to ask some questions, and I'm going to come down here. Are there any Twix fans in the room? Twix fans? Okay, you were the first one so, that I saw. How about 
Don't put, put your hand down. You don't even know what I'm going to ask. Look at him. <laughs> Deal with your son, would you please? He's like, I'm a Lila. You don't even know. What if, what if I've got dog poop in here? Do you want that? <laughs> All right. Who likes Milky Ways? Oh, okay. This one's really good. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. How about Jason? Oh, not very good. Now, I've got some really good things here. I'll do this one. Does anybody like kolaches? Kolaches? <laughs> Is anybody in the back, back there, like kolaches? Keith Grissom. Oh, Jerry Finch. I, I'm going to defer to an elder. Not an elder of the church, but an elder statesman. There we go, the old guy. Now, I've got one more great one. Put your hand down, Ace. Like, you don't even, you know what this is? Does anybody like Boston cream donuts from? <laughs> if you don't know what a Boston cream donut is, donut, chocolate glaze, cream in the middle. Mm. And I don't care if you eat it. You can eat it during my sermon. It won't bother me. So what's the point? Do I have a spiritual point? I actually do have a spiritual point. I like chocolate, but I really like peanut butter in the middle of my chocolate. I like chocolate, thin layers of chocolate, but I really like nugget and caramel. Really like that. I like bread. Bread's okay. But give me sausage in the middle of the bread. That's way better in the center that's there. I like chocolate glaze on my donuts, but give me cream in the middle. Give me that in the center. And here's the point, church. If Jesus is not the center, then there's not going to be any satisfaction in our life. We're going to miss it out. He must be in the center. He must be everything that we long for and need in our lives. And so, so Jesus here, in the midst of all of these, this confusion, in the midst of the Pharisees wanting to kill him, he makes it clear and he just reminds the people one more time and he says this, listen, I know the Father. I've been in His presence. I know Him. We have been together. There's not a forever with God, but everlasting to everlasting. We have been together. We are one, coexistent pre-existent we are we are one and i know him and i have been sent by him to you greatest news today great news two thousand years ago in the temple jesus telling the people i have come to rescue you i've come to be in the midst of you and so therefore i must be in the center of your life for life to be satisfying and fruitful and good and so the necessity of christ being at the center of our lives is spoken by Jesus. And then they had enough. Not that they've not had enough, but they're like, okay, we're going to arrest this guy. They hear this. So, so look at verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And so this last statement from Jesus, they're just like, okay, somebody go, somebody go arrest him. Let's somebody do something about that. But the hour had not come. And it didn't matter if they'd come in with machine guns, a bomb, Whatever they wanted to come in, they were not going to get him because his hour had not come. Now, Jesus spoke of this phrase several times. In John 2, 4, he says to his mother at the, the wedding in Cana, um, he said, Woman, what, do you have, what, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. In John eight twenty, we just read it, because his hour had not yet come, but there is eventually coming in about six months when his hour was going to come. In John twelve twenty three. The hour has come, Jesus said, for the Son of Man to be glorified. John 12, 27. So what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from the world to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then as he prayed in John chapter 17, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And so there's a, 
Listen to the hope here. There is a sovereign hour of Christ's life here, and there's a sovereign hour of our lives. God is never surprised by anything that happens in the world. He's never shocked and surprised by things that seem to appear in our lives. He holds the hours of our lives. And so we can trust Him. Regardless of what, whatever we may have fear of, concern of, that keeps us up at night, I just want to remind you there's a comfort of God's sovereign control of things that we can trust Him. And He holds the hours of our lives. Here's the next thing I want us to see. And then Jesus says to them in verse 31, or, or the text John writes to us about the response to Jesus, says, and yet many of the people believed in him, and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? There were people there in Jerusalem who recognized, okay, th- what we have seen from Jesus confirms to us that he is the Messiah we trust in him we believe in him and they didn't stumble over him he wasn't a rock of offense there are two things just let me just point out just for a moment about Christ he either becomes a rock of offense that just makes people grit their teeth and be angry or he is seen as a rock that's chosen and precious to know let me remind us of some words that we studied a few years ago. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and following. Peter writes, as you come to him, a living stone, he's a living stone, not a dead stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of his Father, of God, chosen and precious. And if you know him, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then Peter writes, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him, listen to these words, will not be put to shame. You believe in Jesus? The world may shame you, but, but you don't need to be worried about being put to shame. Because the honor comes, he says, to those who believe... But for those who don't believe, for those who reject Jesus, the stone that the builders rejected, even though they've rejected it, I don't like you, it, it's the cornerstone, and it remains the cornerstone, even in the midst of man's anger about it. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and it's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Let me just remind us just real briefly before we move on to our last point this morning. Jesus is the rock that is chosen and precious by the Father. And he's telling the people in the most loving way, I have come from him. I have come to make him known to you. Um, He is a living stone. He is not a dead stone. And for those who believe in him, they do not have to live in shame. This word shame here in the Greek means to have a feeling of being defeated or being deceived of hope. So if you know Christ this morning... Though the world has a lot of opinions about Him and about God's people and about our stance and our view of truth and what our world makes of great importance that's not of great importance and the world just speaks of us, those who believe in Jesus never ever have to have that feeling that I'm defeated. I'm not going to be victorious. I don't have any hope. And the great hope will be when Christ returns. And in first coming, nobody knew He came. Second coming, everybody knows Jesus has arrived. And the hope of His people is when He comes back the second time, it will all be revealed. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. And His people stand confident in His sovereignty and His glory and His greatness. And we will not have any shame in that moment. And so then Peter says, so the honor comes to those who aren't ashamed. It comes to those who believe in Jesus. And those who believe in Jesus, they continue to move forward in their lives because they walk in obedience. They don't stumble constantly in their life in disobedience. They walk 
in truth. Last thing is this last part, 32 through 36. So Jesus tells them, I'm returning to the Father, but if you reject me, you're not going to be able to follow me to where I'm going. So he says in 32 through 36, let's look at it one more time. So the Pharisees heard the crowds muttering these things about believing in Christ. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And Jesus then said, listen, I will be with you just for a little bit longer. And then I'm going to go to him who sent me. I'm going back to the Father. And you'll seek me. There's going to come a time where you're going to want to seek me and you're not going to be able to find me. And where I am going, back to the Father, you can't come. And so the Jews said to one another, listen to the confusion again. So where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. So based on what was happening and taking place, they spring into action in verse 32 and hearing what the crowds are saying, and they want to arrest Jesus right there. And then Jesus says, listen, don't waste your life. You've got just a little bit more opportunity. I'm going to be here just a little bit longer. And then I'm going to go back to the one who sent me, who I know. And then you're going to look for me, and I'm going to be gone. And where I am, you cannot come. Jesus always goes after the heart, always. And so now he says, I'm just going to be around for a little bit more. And there's going to come a day when you're going to look for me and you're not going to be able to find me. I'm going to be gone. And you're going to recognize, some of you will recognize that um, who I am and, it's, and, it, and it may be too late in a sense some, for some of you. This is very popular today. Listen, church, let's just be honest here. It's very popular today that everybody's going to get to heaven. And Jesus just says here, no, they're not. He says, I'm about to go back to my father and I'm about to be at a place and you can't go where I'm going to be at if you don't believe in me. If your response is to reject me, where I'm going, you cannot come. And they're confused. Is he going to go to Spain among the, the Jews there, among the Gentiles? And is he going to go there and, and, and just go hang out and teach them the things he's been teaching here? They just literally have no clue about this. And, and Jesus' point was this. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your opportunities. Don't waste the, the moments. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. And He's just tenderly in the temple reaching out to them again, saying, come to me. And there are many who have heard the stories of Christ and they've rejected the call for repentance for so long. And I think sometimes people get to the place where there's just... They just don't even see the need for a Savior anymore. The heart's become so dark. It's become so hard. And I just would encourage us this morning, don't waste our lives. Don't waste our lives by allowing too much time and opportunities to pass us by. Because He was going away, there is a great hopeful confidence that should be a part of our lives. And here's that hopeful confidence. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am with my Father, I will bring you also to where I am in heaven. So there's a hope that builds confidence. And I want to close with these thoughts. Over the past month, I've been looking around and listening and reading. I read a lot and, and just listening to Christian culture and the things that are out there. And I'm becoming more and more convinced. I've always believed it, that there just is always a remnant. That the, there's a broad road and there's a narrow way. And only those who find the narrow way enter the kingdom. And if it's narrow and it's hard to find then I think we have to trust what Jesus says there. Are y'all with me about that? If it's narrow and it's hard to find, then not everybody's going to get on it. There's not this, I don't, I don't think everybody in a church in America today is going to heaven. I think many, and maybe, I don't, I don't know if majority is enough, but just there's just a lot of people 
who have a knowledge but have never arrived at the truth that they must trust in Jesus. It may be Jesus plus something or whatever the, whatever the case may be. And so there's a remnant. And I've been thinking these days about um, what does that remnant light look like? What does that life look like? And, and, and a remnant means small, not many and sometimes it feels like, I don't know how it is with you, it just feels like we're living in a foreign world. And I've lived in a foreign country where I'm not a citizen of that country. I um, was a guest there and lived and worked among the people. But um, at times I just felt odd. Just felt odd being there. But what marks the remnant life? And I just want to share a couple of things as we finish. I think it's a solitary life. I think sometimes if you work in the corporate, corporate world, do you feel all alone sometimes? Just that you're the only person who gets what life is about and, and, and what that is. It, sometimes it feels like a solitary life. But when, here's, the, here's a unique thing that though we can sense that, there's, there's something to those who understand that they sometimes have to stand alone, that there's a contentedness to that that they're not worried because they know that this is not their home. Here's the second thing that I know marks a remnant life. It's marked by godly choices. And I believe Christians in the days ahead, we probably are going to stand out more than we ever have before. And I think of, I think one of the best books to understand the remnant life is the book of Daniel. You want to understand what a remnant life looks like? Read the book of Daniel and Daniel and his friends and they just made godly choices, and, and uh, they were supposed to, King Darius wanted them to, uh, or Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to eat food, and that they could not eat, and they just, they resolved to not do it, and, and God honored that, um, and so I believe the remnant life is marked by godly choices. I think the third thing about the remnant life is it's a, resol- it's a resolved life. It's a life that's come to a place where, like Daniel, in Daniel 6, He's elevated to this high position under King Darius. And people are jealous. The foreigners, or actually the inhabitants there, are jealous of the foreigner who's got this high position of power. And so they go to King Darius and say, Hey, Darius, over the next 30 days, if anybody wants to honor anyone but you, um, they have to be thrown into the lion's den. So Darius doesn't know he's being tricked, and he signs this into law because they had been watching, watch, they had been watching Daniel. And Daniel in the morning and at noon and at night, what did Daniel do? He would go and he would face Jerusalem and he would pray. And so the thing was that if he's praying to another God, then Daniel's violating the law. And they wanted to get very similar to something we've just read here. Let's get rid of the one that we don't like, the things that he does and the things that he says. And so when Daniel hears this has been put into law in Daniel 6.10, you know what Daniel does? He goes, oh, I guess I'll just, uh, I'll stop praying. No, he goes up and he knows that they're going to be watching him and he faces Jerusalem and he prays. It's a resolved life that marks the remnant life. And here's the last thing about the remnant life. I believe the remnant life longs for a life that's beyond this life. Just lived marked by this is not home. I and destined for something else, not because I'm good, but because he is good. I know him. I belong to him. And I want that place. I want to be in that place with him. It's like the Apostle Paul when he said, I've got these two choices. I could remain here and continue to do ministry, and that's a great choice. Or Nero could take my head and I could go be with Jesus And Paul says, that's actually the better choice if I lose my life and go to be with him. But if I stay here, I'm going to invest my life. There's a a longing for a life beyond this life to where we don't get caught up here. Daniel 6, you know the story. Let me just briefly remind us. So Daniel goes up and he prays. They come to Darius. Darius, uh, 
Is the law still in act if somebody prays to another God and acknowledges someone else that they get thrown into the lion's den? Yes, yes, by the law of the Medes and Persians, it cannot be revoked. Well, Daniel, your guy, has been praying. And there he says a panic moment, and, but he's got to follow through and save face. And so Daniel's brought. They throw Daniel into the lion's den, and I want you to recognize this. Listen. He knew what the result was if he prayed. And Daniel feared God way more than he feared lions. And so when they lowered him down or they threw him down into the lion's pit, if that was going to be the end and he hadn't been given a promise that it wasn't going to be the end, Daniel was content that there was a life beyond this life that was far better than this life. By the way, I don't know about you, I don't want to stay here forever on this place. Sickness, heartache, loss, pain. I want to go to the place where the king wipes the tears from everybody's eyes. I want to go where the old order of things has passed away and behold a new order has come. Well, morning comes. And Darius runs to the lion's den. You know you've had pretty powerful influence on a pagan king when he wakes up in the morning and runs to where you may have been eaten by lions. And he runs and he calls out to Daniel. And Daniel's like, long live the king. I'm down here. Because during the night, my God sent an angel. And he shut the mouths of the lions. In Daniel 6.22 he blessed my life and he's preserved it. You see, the sanctified life, God blesses. God blesses. It's interesting how months ago I wrote this and how applicable it is to this Sunday before Tuesday. And I just want to remind you and I of this this morning. That when we wake up Wednesday, not that we may know anything Wednesday, if it doesn't go your way or if it goes your way, I want to remind you of something. Our God is seated on his throne still. And he's sovereign and he can be trusted and he's good. He's good. And may we be as Daniel, fear God more than lions. Fear God more than lions. Look at 37 just for a second. So he tells them where I am. You cannot come in 36. And then on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stands up and he cries out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And that's where we'll be next week. It's just this great proclamation of Christ calling the people again to himself for satisfaction. Let's pray.